This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. Well, my guest today, multi-award-winning Brian Trenchard-Smith, is an Anglo-Australian film and television director, producer, and writer with a reputation for making large-scale movies on small-scale budgets. Quentin Tarantino referred to him in Entertainment Weekly as one of his favorite directors. Among Brian's credits are successes like The Man from Hong Kong, Siege of Firebase Gloria, Dead End Drive-In, which is a particular Tarantino favorite, BMX Bandits, which showcased a 15-year-old Nicole Kidman, Long Lost Son, Arctic Blast, The Cabin, Absolute Deception, and Drive Hard. Brian has also directed 43 TV episodes of such series as Silk Stockings, Time Tracks, Five Mile Creek, The Others, and Flipper. Brian's debut novel, Alice Through the Multiverse, was recently published and is available at Amazon in paperback and Kindle. For those reasons and so many more, it's a truly fantastic honor and a real joy for me to have as my guest on StoryBeat today, Brian Trenchard-Smith. Brian, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, my great pleasure. So let's go and review a little bit about how you got to this point. What were your earliest inspirations and influences? What, what got you to start into making movies? Well, uh, I guess uh, I was kind of an 11-year-old assistant projectionist at my first school, they would show 16-millimeter movies uh, to the pupils once every three weeks. There would be a, a cartoon, generally a Popeye cartoon, occasionally a Disney uh, cartoon, and then there would be you know, an old film that was considered suitable for the 8 to you know, 12 and a half year olds that attended the school. Uh, and I, you know, a particular teacher ran the projector, and I was curious as to how it worked. And uh, it was one of those projectors with uh, carbon, you know, it was an, an arc lamp projector oh, really? and, uh, with two carbons that had to be uh, it kept, you know, close together, causing this very bright light that uh, was then reflected through the projector onto the screen. Right. A real old-fashioned projector. Um, you know, I, I refer to it as his sort of... Uh, you know, Frankenstein projector because he'd built it out of, you know, half a dozen different parts. Anyway, I, you know, started to learn how it worked and uh, would learn how to thread up the, uh, the, the 16 millimeter print and, uh, uh, and, and monitor the, uh, the, the light level through the, the arc lamps. So that was my first experience, really, and watching the movie uh, from, 
you know, the, the projector, which wasn't in a box, it was just at the back of the of the, of the room. Right. Uh, and watching the audience reaction to it, my fellow pupils, um, I I really liked the feeling of putting on a show. Uh, I wanted to entertain people, and in some way, just by keeping the projector uh, bright enough, uh, I was in some way contributing to uh, to the show. And uh, so that was kind of the start of it. Uh, and then uh, I, you know, I moved on to getting an eight millimeter camera when I was in my uh, early teens uh, and making little eight millimeter films. Eight millimeter uh, or super eight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, and and finally, as a you know, uh, at the age of seventeen, the my second school, um, was a British public school called Wellington College. Right. Um, they actually commissioned me to make a, a year-long record of uh, of the school's activities that would be, you know, shown to the parents of prospective pupils and whatever. And that that little forty-minute eight-millimeter film got me my first. You know, tiny little professional job uh, editing some 16 millimeter film for um, actually my then girlfriend's father, uh, who who uh, had some footage that he needed organized um, that his company had taken, um, and uh, so I duly uh, you know, organized it, uh, and that was really my f- the, f- the first job I got paid for. So, 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 wait, um, so but, I want to go back a half a step here. You say you, you made a 40-minute movie at what age? Um, 17, through, 17 through 18. Um, That's impressive. Well, I, I I would record certain activities that the school did. Uh, big ath- there were seven, nearly seven hundred boys, uh, and we had a cadet corps, so that allowed me to film a battle scene uh, with twenty guys and throwing thunder flashes and firing blanks, etc. Uh, I, I just I I, I had a. A, a squad overrun a trench line. That was <laughs> something I wanted to do, which is obviously based upon, you know, war movies that I had seen yes. by that age. Uh, so, uh, but this was a, you know, a, a record of, you know, all aspects of the of the school's curriculum and, you know, the, the you know, basically what life would be like for a, a pupil at that school. Seven months of the year, which yeah they would be spending as a as a boarding yeah, as a boarder, um, and uh, so uh, the school was reasonably I think very happy with it. I uh, you know I shot it on eight millimeter film. I edited the, the, the film together. Then I created a, a a synchronized music track to play on a tape recorder. You know, pressing the the roll the button uh, at exactly the right time uh, to synchronize with the first image <laughs> right. um, as the <laughs> film was projected. Um, I lifted music from uh, long playing records of uh, of epic music scores <laughs> that I uh, that I, I had liked. I, I collected music scores. Uh, in those days, and you know, I had you know, Spartacus and you know, Ben Hur and uh, uh, you know, the uh, you know, ep- epics of the uh, of the time. Sure. Uh, totally inappropriate, really, uh, <laughs> soundtrack. But uh, uh, I don't know. Must have given it a quite a surreal um, quality. So I handed over the film and the the tape recording to uh, uh, to the school after it was duly presented, um, and they showed it a number of 
times, uh, I guess, over the next few years. And then, unfortunately, it got lost. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my very first work... Uh, uh, yeah, was um, it cannot be found. So, so but I, that's okay. The, um, the tre- I knew at the age of thirteen, after I'd seen Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, right, um, that uh, what I wanted to do was make films, and the it, it sort of came to me like a sort of eureka moment um, after as the as the film yeah closed that. Um, when I would leave school in five years' time, I would have to do what adults do, which is work for a living. Yes. Uh, and it occurred to me that, you know, people got paid to make these films. Um, that was a genuine job. And, and I thought, right, okay, that's the job I want. Um, so I will duly try and get it. And so you uh, have. And, and so uh, you have I, it in, yeah, in I spades. I no idea how difficult that would be. Uh, and, uh, but... I just lucked out. I was in the right place at the right time at various key moments from over the next few years. So, um, and uh, so uh, I consider myself very fortunate. And I think if I was uh, an 18 to 20-year-old right now uh, wanting to get into the film business, and you know, I'd, I'd made a short film on my, my cell phone, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, it would be a lot harder uh, now than it was for me back in, well, in when I first started looking for a job in 1964, which to present some of your younger listeners must seem like you know, <laughs> the Jurassic uh, era. Um, but uh, Why would it be uh, harder? It, it was certainly an interesting era. Uh, I feel I have had, um, yeah, I, I, I've been, you know, privileged enough to, to, you know, to work in the business during probably its last golden age. Brian, um, Brian, why would it be harder? Um, well, the, I think the, the number of opportunities to make you know, a professional-looking feature film and get it seen by people uh, have shrunk. Uh, the business has become intensely corporatized and the you know, number of, of, of outlets that you could go to uh, to um, get a, a film funded um, has, yeah, has, has shrunk. And it's all based upon distribution. Um, and there's been a complete you know, upheaval in the way uh, what is now referred to as content uh, is, uh, is shown. Um, and we're seeing the streaming services, the you know, streaming platforms, are, um, are more and more the way people see um, anything other than the big blockbusters. Uh, certainly, there are Oscar you know, nominated and winning films uh, at the end of the year that people flock to see in the cinema. Uh, and yeah, you know, there, there will always be a desire to. Uh, be you know, in a darkened room with a whole lot of other people experiencing something on the screen uh, without interruption. They'll, and people will always go to a, a hall of public entertainment in order to have that experience. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's no longer what cinema was um, when I was 
growing up or uh, or as a very young man you know i i could i could you know go to a movie in england for two shillings and sixpence uh, <laughs> back when i was 18 19 uh and uh, uh but uh, now if you know if you want to go to the movies you know you you know look at the ticket price and obviously it's perhaps it's less in pittsburgh than it is in los angeles i'm in portland um but you know the it's 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 no longer the the same kind of experience um uh so uh but your question really pertains to people uh, to people getting into the business yes um, i mean i suppose it's the same it has been the same for uh you know for generations First of all, you have to have a piece of material that um, the uh, ec- experts in the business uh, think people will pay to see. So you have a script that uh, has either a you know, totally engrossing story, um, and yeah, you know, if you just put this on the screen, people will flock to see it. Uh, but it also has to have a star. Uh, I'm sure you can make a film with a, 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 a number with an unknown cast, and many a successful horror film has done that because Correct. it's the horror that is the star, yeah. and the prosthetic makeup and whatever. But uh, uh, generally, you have to have someone that the public respond to uh, as a key character in the film. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there is quite a process that you know you have to go through to. Um, to get your film funded, um, so it's that uh, it, in my young day, uh, certainly growing up as I did, ultimately in, in Australia, I grew up in England, but I then moved to the land of my father when I was just 19, turning 20, and I went to Australia, right. where there was no film industry, but there were three commercial television networks as well as a government network, and uh, it, it was an expanding business. And so I was able to get in initially as a, a news film editor, uh, touting my 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 editing ability, uh, <laughs> as described uh, earlier. Uh, and in those days in Australia, if you were keen, if you were volunteered to do things, people gave you a shot. If you fell on your face, then well, they didn't give you a shot quite so easily the next time. But if you succeeded, they're great. Uh, and consequently, you know, before my, you know, well, it, it, at the age of 21, um, by volunteering, um, I became a junior executive um, at a television station in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, was given you know, the opportunity to make promos for um, the upcoming new season's programming uh, that would open uh, at the very beginning of February each year uh, when the ratings would start. They'd, the ratings would have ceased from you know, the end of October um, or somewhere in mid, mid-November perhaps sometimes. Uh, and then they would start again in, in, uh, in February with... Yeah, new programming, both uh, from Britain, America, and some new programming actually created in Australia. And that was where I wanted to go and, and get into that new programming and uh, get to make programs myself. But I, I had it was a, 
I, I had a sort of a circuitous route to do that. But right. Anyway, I volunteered for promos. The promos that I made uh, were successful, possibly because I kind of concentrated on sex and violence uh, in the extracts that I uh, <laughs> that I chose, um, and uh, I was considered to have done a great job. And when I announced that I was going to go back to England uh, via Japan and America to broaden my my understanding of uh, of television entertainment by visiting TV studios and uh, and so forth. And, uh, um, uh, then uh, they said, "Well, look here. Here's a reel of your stuff. Um, take, you know, on 16 millimeter. Well, they transferred it from tape to 16 mil, and uh, that'll help you, you know, demonstrate your skills. And that worked uh, because an American company saw what I had done." When I visited them in uh, in Hollywood, and they said we have a, a trailer making department in the UK, and they might be looking for a new writer producer of trailers. Would you? Um, why don't you go along and be interviewed? I was duly interviewed and hired by National Screen Service in London to make trailers for them, and I made some 25 trailers, including Hammer horrors and. And Sergio Leone is Once Upon a Time in the West. I, I made the trailer for that, wow. film, which you can find on YouTube. Wow. Um, and so that, uh, getting, you know, getting into trailers on that level, you know, on the feature film level, as opposed to, you know, a television in a, you know, a relatively small population uh, country like Australia at that time, um, that was a great help, uh, and it all came out of uh, volunteering and, and, and seeing seeing an opportunity and, and, and trying to fill it uh, as, as, you know, as soon as I saw it. So that the the, the trailer making um, was you know very you know uh, very educational as well about marketing uh, of movies, uh, and so I learned a lot in, you know, as a result of that. But eventually, the Australian Television Network said, please come back and you know, make some more promos for us. Uh, and we're moving into color TV. I mean, this may astonish some of your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> what? No, there, wasn't, there was a television that was, that was not in color. Yes, no, it was black and white television in Australia right until... Same here. Four, I think. But they said, come back, and I said, well, I will. I'll give up this trailer-making career in England, but I have to, you have to give me programs to make. And that is how, that would never happen, I think, today. That is how I made the lateral move from a promotion and, 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 uh, and advertising material uh, to uh, production of, uh, of actual entertainment. Um, so... Uh, and yeah, I got a lot of interesting things to make. Initially, there were uh, I produced um, a you know beauty quest shows like Quest of Quests. Um, I mean, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure these things are all you know, you know they are politically incorrect now. Do you these do you pageants. and I I I, I, really, I understand that. Brian, uh, do you do but, you feel do you feel anyway, as if that being was an... a start? Um, so. Next question. Yes. Do you feel as if uh, the editing process that you learned early on uh, held you in good stead as you started to direct? Absolutely. Uh, the you know 
some of the best directors uh, of you know classic films started as absolutely editors. David Lean, you know, for instance. Uh, he was an editor. Sam Peckinpah, uh, Hal Ashby. Um, uh, there are n- numerous. Uh, Hal Ashby was a, yeah. uh, an editor. I could go. There's a there's a long list. Uh, and uh, editing is the you know, it's the grammar and syntax uh, of you know of, of cinema language. Uh, it's what order do you uh, arrange your images in, uh, and how is this image compatible with the next image? Uh, uh, will it flow? Will, will, will you know, the succession of images flows smoothly, so you completely un- understand, you know, geography, where you are, where the characters are, um, how the characters relate to each other, and uh, where they move to in the scene, uh, uh, what are the points of emphasis in the scene, what lines should actually get a close-up, um, because they're of that importance, what lines should, you know, be quite happily played in a, in a master shot. Um, uh, or yeah, preferably a moving master shot because I do like to move the camera. You do. You like to move the camera a lot. Yes. And I think uh, and I think well, it's it, it's I a home. I don't want to have a camera that is, seems to be suffering from Saint Vitus's dance, <laughs> uh, and you know the invisible man with hiccups is somehow observing the scene. Uh, <laughs> I you know I think that's obtrusive uh, and potentially takes the audience out of the movie or out of the story. So uh, you have to sort of get the happy medium uh, between um, you know, allowing the scene to, to work in, uh, in its own right and uh, the level of visual enhancement that you give it, the, you know, the, 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 the degree to which you perhaps subordinate the scene to style as opposed to to substance, right? Um, it's it's a delicate balance, uh, but uh, I I think you know camera movement generates energy. Um, you know, good editing will generate energy. I don't like machine gun editing in fight scenes where it's a blizzard of you know contrasting long lens shots. Right. Uh, some of which, uh, well, sometimes that kind of staging is to disguise the fact that the fighters have only got, you know, well, have, let's say, limited skill uh, to be able to do, you know, certain movements only in, in, in individual shots. You look at some, you know, the best, let's say, uh, Chinese you know, movies in the classic period, and you see, yeah, the athleticism that is depicted in long flowing um, camera movements uh, where you actually see the guys they're really doing it you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and uh, so it's not uh, created with you know, the you know, with, with the, the the magic of editing let's say uh, so um, that's you know that, that's yeah I've you know, I've always you know found it important uh, to you know, that seeing is believing, let's say. And I 
and I've tried to apply that to action staging as well in my sort of stunt movie period. Well, you, you, I, you know, I've seen four of your movies recently. In fact, in fact, over the weekend, um, uh, Roy I, or a glutton for punishment. <laughs> oh. I, I saw Dead End Drive In over the weekend and thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it's a very interesting and unique concept for a story. And um, you also, you're, you're, I'm going back to your um, statement about directing action you obviously love and know how to direct action what what would you say are the hallmarks of making a good action scene work well i would say that although you might have a, a vast battle taking place um the audience is, is is primarily interested in what the characters involved in that battle are feeling mm -hmm. and uh, reacting to what is going on around them. So, you know, just clever choreography of carnage and mayhem is all, all well and good up to a point, but unless you, f you know, focus it through the eyes of the relevant characters, good guys, bad guys, whatever, or you, you you know, you will not be serving the drama as well as as you should. So never lose sight, never lose sight of, or touch, never lose touch with uh, that. You know, that central character who is involved in uh, in an action scene. So you you need to know how he or she is thinking and feeling uh, at, at key moments mm -hmm. in um, within the spectacle. Say. It's all point of view. It's all perspective on how that action is taking place. Then that's right. That's right. And again, uh, uh, you have to sort of keep ma making the audience worry about the, the characters they care about and how they, you know, will or in some cases, obviously, will not escape uh, their fate. Um, uh, and so you you have to constantly emphasize uh, the proximity of the danger that they face in whatever action scene it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, would you say that uh, you're best known for action movies? I would say so. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm a bit hard to categorize because I I am in fact multi generic. Yeah, uh, true. I like every genre known to man, and and a few that that are you know hard to categorize. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I I I can turn my hand to anything. Um, you want me to, you know, shoot a Shakespeare play uh, in. You know, in modern dress, let's say, in, uh, in in existing locations, or you know, shoot it in in period locations. Uh, um, I can, you know, I can do that, you know, with without any difficulty. At the same time, I can do a, a raucous oddball comedy, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I've studied cinema since I was a child, uh, and. You know, I, I understand what makes each genre work, and I understand the you know the various styles that are uh, available to a filmmaker, uh, with which you know he, he will make the you know the relevant film. Uh, so uh, it's simply a matter of 
considering the script in relation to uh, similar pictures in the past in the same genre. Uh, how do we make this version of you know a familiar story fresh uh, or fresher at least? Um, uh, I mean, the public do like formulas; they just want a a, a different twist uh, each time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so I you know I I try to sort of bring my sort of experience and uh, a knowledge and understanding of uh, how various films work and 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 what what seems to. Uh, you know, work for their respective audiences, and so I try to bring that to each new project. What, one um, of the uh, one I of like the... genre cocktails. I like uh, <laughs> you know a film that you know maybe blends two genres together. Sure, I, I one of the things that we you know I, I've been teaching screenwriting for the last uh, almost nine years in Pittsburgh, and and one of the things that we emphasize is studying genre and different genres without knowing those genres by watching a lot of movies, reading a lot of scripts and stories. You you don't understand how the mechanics of each genre work. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, 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 it takes, you know, it takes a while to, to get that. Uh, but, you know, I just have, uh, well, I've, uh, my, I've sort of my mind is <laughs> life is a movie, <laughs> or, <laughs> so it seems to me. Uh, I see lots of things uh, in in terms of their you know their movie potential and things. I might walk down the street and uh, observe something, a uh, little human interaction going on, and uh, I think, oh, well, that could be an interesting scene. Or I, you know, I, I visit a, a place of architectural grandeur, and I think, wow, I'd like to get a camera on this place sometime. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, and uh, you know, so I, it, it, everywhere I go is a potential location, and how would I photograph it? Oh, well, it would look good from here in morning light, and so on. So you know uh, that's kind of how my my mind works, <laughs> which is not for everybody. No, uh, but uh, uh, you know it works for me. Well, speaking of of, of uh, doing stories in a different way, let's talk for a moment. We'll come back to filmmaking, but let's talk for a moment about writing your book, Alice Through the Multiverse. Um, wh- what tr- you know? What triggered you to write Alice Through the Multiverse? Well. Uh, I initially wrote it as a screenplay ah. under the title of The Executioner's Daughter. Uh, and it was optioned for yeah, quite good money um, twice. Uh, but we could never get um, Kira Knightley or Scarlett Johansson or any of the sort of young 20-ish uh, female stars that had an international profile, um, uh, we could never, you know, get them without, let's say, a, a firm pay-or-play offer, um, but until we could get, you know, an, act, an actor of that you know, uh, stature to play the, the leading role, and then, no doubt, surround her with solid guest stars, um, we couldn't get the picture financed, uh, and, and you know it was not made. It was it was to be independently financed uh, and shot in Europe, and it just it was not something that agents encouraged their 
their stars uh, to do. Um, at the time, both these ladies were, you know, like 20-ish, uh, early 20s. And um, uh, so, you know, the, 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 as far as the agents were concerned, the better, if you're going to do genre, do studio genre. It's better paid and then you're guaranteed to a release. But if you do one of these independent genres, you might end up direct to video, and that will damage your price and therefore my commission. As far as the next project is concerned, if uh, it's considered that your value has dropped, so that was you know that that's one of the things that can, can, can that right now is you know makes it ever harder for. Uh, New filmmakers to get some traction um, because uh, the you know the, the, the sought after stars are bombarded with projects uh, and their advisors recommend which ones they should take um, and you know try and extract as much money as possible um, and you know sometimes you'll get you know fifty percent of a budget is going into paying the stars. And whatever's left is what you get to make the movie with. Right. Um, and that, you know, you, there are quite a few films of where you can really see that, uh, you know, the, the, the economy of the film has, uh, has been, has, has, let's say, been a bit skewed uh, uh, that way. And uh, the film doesn't really have the production value and the staging that the subject matter requires because so much of the money has gone into the above the line sure. component of the budget. Sure. Anyway, back to Alice. Uh, so uh, after a while, um, the rights returned to me, and uh, I put it aside, but uh, it kept gnawing at my liver. I just, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I just saw, you know, this film was still playing in my head. So uh, I decided to novelize it, uh, and, uh, and duly did. Uh, and uh, uh, Alice, uh, I, I, I gave it a title that was less historical uh, and more um, uh, paranormal. Uh, in essence, uh, Alice uh, is, you know, a you know, uh, a young girl who um, believes she is the daughter of a 16th-century executioner. And suddenly she wakes up in a uh, contemporary uh, psychiatric institution. Yeah. Is she actually crazy or has some uh, kind of past life swap taken place? And uh, she is now inhabiting the body of, uh, of you know, one of her you know, uh, subsequent descendants and vice versa. Uh, has the the girl you know, also been transported? The modern girl been transported to the past? I mean, you've seen these kind of time paradox films and television shows, like you know, uh, Outlander being one. I've only recently caught up with Outlander, and I I wrote this initially in 2004, wow, uh, and uh, novelized it subsequently uh, in in more recent years. Um, but uh, it's it's it's, a, a, I guess, a past life swap story where both parties uh, find themselves caught up in uh, similar political conspiracies. Uh, and 
uh, you know, are you know ill-equipped to deal with them, and yet because of you know the essential you know, smartness and the nobility of, of of the character, they're able to overcome the necessary obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the book has an ending. I don't think that uh, anyone is uh, predicting. Uh, and uh, I'll be interested in if you do read the book in your opinion. Uh, but uh, there are some nibbles at the moment for it as a, as a potential series on a, a streaming ah, platform. That'd uh, be great. It's all just polite conversation at the moment. Uh, so much of <laughs> what goes on is polite conversation yes. that never actually comes to fruition. Yes. So I'm not holding my breath. That's the business. Uh, but it's that's an ideal business. vehicle for a series. So, uh, so, uh, so let's talk about the see. let's let's talk about the writing of it. Um, you wrote the screenplay first and then novelized it. How from I mean I you know obviously um, you know how to create a story. What differences are there in writing the novel than writing the script? Um, well, obviously you can expand every character's backstory and. You know, aspects of their character uh, through another par- uh, paragraph of prose. If you do that in a screenplay, the audience never sees or hears it. Uh, it, it has to be what the characters say and do yep. on the screen. Absolutely. Uh, and the screenplay should stick as much as possible to uh, you know, giving the reader that information uh, as, as quickly as possible. Uh, long, florid descriptions of the landscape or the mansion or, or, or whatever uh, don't really work in a screenplay, but they do work uh, to a degree in um, in a novel. You set the scene. You know, the audience is not watching it on the screen. They're watching it in their imagination. Yeah. I mean, Alice Through the Multiverse is, is basically it's a movie in prose with a lot of um, uh, with, a, with a much deeper look at all the characters um, so that the audience can understand them better. Um, so should it ever become a series, uh, we would need to uh, get that level of depth into uh, the, the writing of the series. Um, and uh, that's one of the great things about these streaming series is that you can do things at much greater length uh, than you know than you can for a, a, a two-hour movie, and so you can really explore character um, that way. So I've you know I've tried to you know give you know you know to, to really f- flesh out the. The, the edges and the corners of uh, uh, of each scene in the uh, um, in the novel, though the novel is very fast paced. I mean, I've designed it to be a page turner, right. where every two or three pages you say, "What? Ooh, really? Hmm. Okay, read on." Um, so, because uh, you know, the you know, central character is frequently you know. Back, sent unexpectedly back and forth without, uh, you know, without any control over the ability to uh, to return to one time zone or the other. Uh, so there are you know, surprises and cliffhangers uh, throughout, uh, as there would be you know, should it be uh, uh, you know, filmed. Uh, but um, essential differences, I suppose. 
between. So, all right. So when you're when you're starting to write a new script or you're coming up with a new story, do you um, do you well, usually have the, the story worked out? Alice, uh, I had I woke up one morning. I, I have wild dreams, and I don't always remember them, but occasionally I do. And I had this dream in which there seemed to be some kind of medieval execution being about to take place, and then a riot breaks out. And particularly, I, I, I just remember the man in, announcing the ex- execution suddenly gets an arrow in in the mouth as he opens his mouth to read the uh, the official pronouncement, and a riot breaks out. And then suddenly, there's this young girl, um, you know, teenager, running from the 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 site, and the, and now there's a thunderstorm and pouring rain and lightning. And as she runs away, pursued by three men, uh, into this very fierce storm, um, she slips and falls and uh, rolls onto a hard surface. uh, And, you know, she sees two giant eyes moving towards her. uh, And she, you know, these two giant eyes stop right right in front of her but then this beast proves you know to be in fact you know what we would recognize as uh, a, a 2020 you know toyota land cruiser <laughs> and she faints and that that little flash was all i could sort of remember in fact i'm, you know, I'm probably I'm, i don't know what car it was in the dream but i've since made it that uh, and I thought, hmm, this is an interesting premise, um, and I should do something with this. And I scribbled down a few notes of what I could remember. And at that time, uh, we were living in Westwood, uh, Los Angeles, yeah. and my wife was uh, in the doctoral program at UCLA, and therefore I had access to the UCLA facilities as the spouse, um, and uh, so I would every day, as part of my sort of daily discipline, because I think um, exercise is very important to people, and particularly people in this business, uh, and it should be part of your working day that you go and take exercise for half an hour, or yeah, though I would swim for longer. So I'd go to the UCLA, UCLA swimming pool, and I'd, I'd lap for half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever, and ideas would come to me, and I would go back to the locker room and quickly scribble down anything that I didn't want to forget. And then I would go home, and gradually I started putting together building blocks um, that you know pertained to this story. Um, and that's how you know one day it occurred to me that there was an undercover CIA officer working uh, in. Uh, the this psychiatric hospital because it is possibly the site of some nefarious uh, goings on um, uh, by rogue intelligence agents uh, and so gradually the the contemporary plot came together um, and then I thought well it would be interesting if when she's back uh, when the, the contemporary girl is back in the past whether she made some 
you know, because she is naturally a history student, she's able to use her understanding of history to, um, uh, you know, uh, involve herself in the what she sees as the political conspiracy, which there was a political conspiracy, let's say, to uh, uh, have the young Princess Elizabeth before she became Elizabeth I, but during the reign of Bloody Mary, um, uh, to have the young Princess Elizabeth accused of treason and den- therefore, you know, either you know, by exile or execution, denied access to the throne uh, because, you know, there, there were forces one, you know, that, that wanted to, you know, keep Britain Catholic and not uh, not Protestant. Right. So, uh, they, should she interfere with with history? What are the consequences? Is there a butterfly effect, uh, etc.? So uh, various you know, other ideas would come to me quite often during swimming, uh, and uh, um, uh, so and I'm also you know a fencer. I fence epee, uh, so there had to be a duel scene. Uh, and uh, so gradually things sort of started the building blocks started to assemble themselves and uh, somehow out of that whole process um, I wrote a screenplay that initially you know got a a good option Um, and uh, I think I made I did 11 drafts ultimately to try and satisfy everybody 11 11 yes um uh, and then that is not uncommon, I would say, with writers. Writing is not rewriting. I'm sure you teach that. Yes, not uh, rewriting is where it happens. Yes, yes. I mean, I could, go, I, I, I could, you know, yeah, never totally finished the screenplay by just continuing to write and rewrite and rewrite. I, I think there, are, there comes a point when you have to say, well, okay, let's roll the dice on this. Absolutely. Um, and you know that's what I have done. Uh, and uh, what, what, Brian, know, I, Brian, I what happened? With what, the, the what, novel and you know, people who read it like it. Obviously, is a, uh, a self-published novel on Amazon. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's it's one of you know let's say four million books <laughs> that you can <laughs> access through Amazon and Kindle. So it's uh, yeah it. it Getting getting your, yourself to be noticed in a noisy and crowded marketplace is, is always a challenge. Uh, but anyway, people like it, and uh, hopefully um, it can one day become uh, a TV series, which uh, would you know uh, probably please me more than if it became a feature film, because it could be done with greater depth of character as sure, a result. Sure, sure. When, when, you're, when you're working on something, you're 11 drafts in, what are the clues for you when you're working on all those drafts? What are the clues that you are either approaching or really at the point where you can take it out and show it to people and hopefully sell it? What, what tells you that you're at that juncture? Well, uh, I was showing it to people, and it got optioned at the third draft. Wow then went on to do all the other drafts, trying to take care of everybody's notes, which were often contradictory. <laughs> so, you know, that is a, something that, that, That's that every young writer that you, uh, you know, help, you know, get started in the business uh, through your, your lectures. Uh, that's something that he will face. Everyone has an opinion. Some p- opinions are well thought through, and some are just plain stupid. Yes. Uh, but uh, if 
the person in power over the arrangement uh, doesn't actually have the, the, the same grasp of the disciplines of screenwriting as you might have, um, uh, then you know, you, you're going to have to try and accommodate his views. Or, uh, and it, this is a business which kind of attracts those of an egotistical nature. And I am one of such people. I'm, you know, very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite clear on what I want to do, and and that I'm right to want to do it that way. <laughs> I'm sure every writer feels that. Uh, and you just have to balance your natural ego drive and your belief in yourself to the, you know, the, the needs to accommodate uh, yourself to your inevitable partners in the project um, because, well, you know, they, they all have something at stake too. And if, when you are Quentin Tarantino, you can do it entirely your own way. Uh, very few people have uh, access to the kind of budgets uh, that he has been able to access and the, the right of final cut. Uh, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, and uh, you know, there, there were a few others. Um, but you know, they, you know, they have proven that they can be right you know, most of the time. Uh, and therefore, they're given that opportunity to have the work exactly as they want it. Uh, so, uh, and then that, that's fine. But most of us have to accommodate ourselves to the, 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 you know, the, the wishes of a, of a committee, in effect, uh, that will judge the screenplay, judge the casting, judge the movie, its editing, etc. Um, and, you know, uh, and they may interfere uh, with the creative process at any step along the way mm -hmm. because they feel like they have to protect their investment uh, or their career reputation. Uh, no one wants to be the, you know, uh, the producer or the distributor of a flop. Um, <laughs> no. It's the quick and the dead in this business. <laughs> you can be, it can be, a, you can be, it'll be a long time between drinks sometimes <laughs> if you as an executive uh you know, uh, preside over a huge flop, then you will be sidelined or fired, and uh, it might take a while for you to get back onto the same strata of uh, uh, of the business again. Do you find it's the same uh, thing when you've written the screenplay, or or as opposed to when someone else has written the screenplay, in terms of the way that you're approaching it and the way that you're working with it and what your demands of that story are? Is it the same when you've written it? Or is it the, the as when someone else has written it, or is it different? Well, I, I, well, I mean, I try to be as disciplined with myself as I am with the work of others. Right. Uh, I try to be fair to the work of others. Um, you know, I, there are many a screenplay I've been given that I say, well, I really don't think this works uh, as intended. I think you should, you know, steer it more in this direction. Uh, or we can't make this screenplay on the budget that is available. We need to uh, still keep it interesting and exciting, but we have to sort of write it back a bit because we, you know, the second chariot race is just, you know, more than we can afford. Uh, so, uh, so there are all sorts of reasons why, you know, you might be rewriting someone else's work or, or requesting as director that, 
they change the script accordingly. And yeah, you know, and, and and you know, look, I've I've had a um, great relationship with a writing partner, Dennis Pratt, who happens to be Boris Karloff's great nephew. Oh wow! Okay. Yes, and 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 he looked yeah, and you look, look him up as a as an actor on IMDb, and you can see the resemblance. Um, but we've written a number <laughs> of things together, uh, and and he has given me advice on on a whole lot of things that I wrote or rewrote. Um, so it's been a wonderful you know twenty five year relationship with another actor who's another writer who has. Uh, uh, you know, has written some screenplays uh, and uh, a novel in, in his own right. Um, so it, it's it, well, it, it, every every screenplay is different. But uh, uh, in the case of Drive Hard, um, that went through a, a number of different screen uh, uh, script iterations. It was originally set in America. Uh, the way it could be financed as a co-production between Australia and Canada, um, the the the, you know, the financial benefits of setting it up that way uh, meant that it had to be reset in Australia, which you know, with some American characters, uh, but uh, basically you know, uh, set in Australia with the remaining characters being Australian, right? And you know, a, a kind of a, a uh, a chase that went from you know, California to Canada um, or uh, or the border of Canada um, did not make sense, let's say, in the Australian context uh, because the entire every state in Australia is still part of Australia. Uh, it's not like you can get across the border to Mexico or Canada and you'll be out of jurisdiction. Right. So there there are sort of you know key logic points that have to be adjusted when you change countries like that um, and and so forth so uh, I you know there were two writers the original two writers uh, that I actually you know I, I I didn't have dealings with because you know their deal was done and they, they had moved on and there briefly was an Australian writer who did the the sort of pure geographical transposition of the script to Australia, not necessarily taking care of some of those the points I've just mentioned, and so I came in and did the rewrite um, uh, and ad ad adapted it therefore uh, to what I thought we could achieve in 18 days of photography, uh, and uh, also most importantly, uh, writing the script to satisfy the designated star, John Cusack, uh, who had very definitive ideas about, of, as to what he would or would not do right. uh, in this story. Uh, it was originally a, an, an action piece intended for Jason Statham, and then when he didn't bite, it was intended for Jean-Claude Van Damme. When he didn't bite, uh, we were told... Uh, and this is before I came on board as a as a writer and director. Um, we were told that there was a window uh, in of opportunity uh, in his schedule between pictures that he could fit this one in. He could give us 14 out of the 18 days if 
but 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 by a certain date he had to go on to a David Cronenberg picture, um, much more important than the the one we were making. Yeah. So if we could get the the we we could get it shot by that day, uh, and give him a screenplay that he was prepared to do. Um, then you know it was off to the races. But uh, uh, so my draft uh, incorporated a great deal of material uh, that he wanted to do, and and I kind of enjoyed that material. I like his anarchic sense, uh, like his you know his his, his attitude to uh, to politics, uh, which he wanted to you know, he wanted to bring that into the script. Right. Uh, so I duly accommodated him uh, in, in every regard, and as a result, he said, "Okay, I'm doing this." Uh, and we further embellished it, um, improvised, and did various things during uh, our Fast and Furious shoot, which unfortunately didn't have a Fast and Furious budget. <laughs> uh, a film that seemed to be selling itself as a car chase movie. Um, could not afford to damage any of the vehicles. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's the deal the producers made, uh, and I had to live with it. You will see The scene of the SUV flipping and catching fire uh, is actually a stock shot. Um, you know, it's, it, when you have black SUVs, it's quite easy to uh, to double them, even with the uh, uh, the, the wrong make. But uh, it, it, they, we were supplied with a stock shot by the distributor, and we added digital flames to it. So the only thing we were able to break was well, we we we, we put had a motorbike uh, crash and it lay down, but it was. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, that was an easily repairable. That that did not cost money so much to to, to repair. But you know, we couldn't have massive uh, collisions and, uh, uh, and and property damage. Uh, I mean, we we were low budget property damage. Uh, go through an arts and crafts fair and knock over some stalls. That was that was, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of the level of property damage that we could manage. But so the chase had to be, to a degree, the stunt of the near miss, as opposed to the stunt of the massive destruction. So, so did you? Did, did, I want to go back a half a step. Did you say you shot that movie in eighteen days? Yes. That's that's eighteen ten-hour days. That's amazing. That's, well, um, I guess that's part of my reputation. It, it is. I, I make decisions quickly, or that I I have a plan, you know, for the day. Uh, Every day, uh, and, and if things go wrong, I can uh, adjust that plan and still get the most I can out of the day uh, under the circumstances. Uh, so, yeah, you know, that's yeah, that's just the nature of the business. And of course, obviously, you know, digital photography uh, does, you know, that that is faster than good old-fashioned 35 millimeter. Um, you know, you you can use less light, need needs uh, less equipment, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, you're not burning you know, you know, 35 millimeter stock processing uh, and so forth. Uh, so some aspects of the digital revolution have been good for movie making, and um, though you know, I uh, I kind of I I, I liked. 
tactile editing, you know, when you could actually feel the film in your hand. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was, you know... Uh, Not anymore. No, no. But that's okay. It, uh, uh, I mean, some people feel very strongly about the death of 35mm. Um, I mean, Quentin will not show... Uh, a digital cinema print at his theater, the New Beverly in Los Angeles, is not you know, is not set up for any kind of uh, digital projection. It's mm. only 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's yeah, and I I understand that there is you know a different response. Um, the I think the brain processes the visual information differently. Um, than you know, it, when it is you know, digital as opposed to 35 millimeter projection. Yeah. Uh, and 35 millimeter offers you know the information in a different way uh, to the brain. I mean, um, anyway, it's uh, that, that's uh, I, I, I'm yeah uh, I'm more interested in just getting. Getting the images looking as good as they can uh, and getting them into the film, so you have to, you know, you, you have to really plan, you know, how to maximize your day. Uh, in Australia, it's a, you know, the, it's a ten-hour day before you know serious overtime takes place, ah. and actors are on an eight-hour day. Wow. Is the film as good as I wanted it to be? I don't. It's, it's rare that 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 ever happens. I mean, you you never achieve perfection. No, um, nobody does. But I think it's an offbeat variation on a you know pretty tried and true formula. You know, the uh, Midnight Run, I guess, was certainly a, an inspiration of the original writers. Sure. Where, you know, a. a yeah, an odd couple forced to you know to be together in the same vehicle, uh, bicker and try and outwit each other, um, uh, and it's a variation on that. Um, so uh, it's you know it's uh, <laughs> um, it it was certainly you know had had a pretty. Yeah, had to do some pretty fast thinking uh, at times in the course of uh, of, of the, the the piece. It's a My lot of planning. The problem it? with it, of course, was the car that I had selected um, as the main vehicle in the chase. You know, a, a nice 80s muscle car um, ultimately was not able to drive very fast. <laughs> and uh, so when you have a title like Drive Hard, you're <laughs> expecting some fast driving. Yes. And, uh, I think we, we didn't live up to expectations in that regard. And uh, maybe I should have chosen a Ferrari, but everyone was terrified of what would happen if we did crash it. Uh, and uh, so I went for a, a distinctive car that wouldn't necessarily attract police attention, um, uh, but was still distinctive and uh, had that kind of retro quality added to the film. But, you know, that was a decision that if I had to do over again, I would not do that. I would have uh, tried to you know, come up with another vehicle that could certainly uh, really accelerate fast. Well, so. Bri Brian, we have been talking for a little more than an hour, if you can believe that. And I still have 
lots of questions, but uh, we're coming to the end of the show, and I've got to ask you the last two questions that I ask everybody. Um, so you, you clearly have uh, worked for quite some time now and worked with lots of different people under lots of crazy circumstances and in many different situations. Um, are you able to share with us anything that... Uh, that would be fun for us to listen to, whether it's a quirky, offbeat, weird, funny, or just an oddball story from your, your past? Well, hmm, yes, so many to choose from, really. Um, I guess one of the most extraordinary things that, that uh, I remember uh, on a, happening you know, to me on a film set was uh, when um, uh, Hollywood, you know, icon of... You know, many decades uh, from the 40s, you know, through the 50s and into the 60s, uh, star of you know westerns and war movies and spy movies, Glenn Ford, uh, who was then you know in his 60s, um, he was you know cast as a guest star in Day of the Assassins, uh, a film you should not see really. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. It's, does not represent my best work, and it, uh, it, it uh, yeah, uh, and I only had him for for two days, and he he was, shall I say, uh, a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, but and and that disappointed me because he was one of my screen heroes. But uh, he, uh, in a scene where he was meant to be shot by one of the other bad guys, and uh, uh, he explained, he told me, look, I have a mortal fear of firearms. Of, of, of guns being pointed at me and being fired, even with blanks. I said, really? You know, I mean, you played the fastest gun alive. Uh, you know, you, you, you're <laughs> reputed to be actually one of the fastest draws. You're supposed to be a far faster draw than John Wayne. Uh, and uh, he said, no, well, I, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm really scared of, of, I don't like having a gun that I know is loaded with blanks pointed at me. So can you please not, sh you know, don't shoot um, me, I don't want to be shot in a, in a wide <laughs> shot where the gun is, you, you see the gun firing. I had actually hoped to, you know, squib him and have multiple bullet hits, you know, go off on his chest, uh, you know, in, in peck and par fashion. Um, but uh, as the producers were so cheap, they required the actors to bring their own clothes. <laughs> then Ford is not going to have his outfit, uh, you know, messed up in this way. Um, but I thought, uh, you know, you, you had to pick the hill you die on, and this was not a fight that I was going to win. So I said, fine, I'll have a shot of him shooting, and I'll have a shot of you clutching your chest and sinking to the ground. Uh, and I duly did that, having done the wide shot, establish the gun, establishing the gun pointed at him with, you know, having shown him that there were no blanks in the gun. So we got the three shots, and he came over to me and said, Oh, thank you, dear boy. Thank you. And gave me a hug and then r reached around uh, gently and cupped my balls in his hands and gave them a gentle squeeze. <laughs> um, now, there was nothing gay about it. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he brought his third wife uh, of four uh, to, uh, the, to, to, to the shooting in Mexico. Um, uh he was just, you know, it was like a kind of, you know, mensch thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> you, you've been a, a good lad. And uh, uh, and I guess in a way, um, it was 
a thank you gesture that kind of <laughs> at the same time let me know um, that he had me by the short and curly <laughs> entire two days that we worked together. Oh, that's hilarious. With, with his insistence upon wearing dark glasses and various, his insistence upon having his lines uh, on cue cards with the in the uh, the outgoing few words of the of the the person to whom he was replying in one color and big bold letters, and then his dialogue uh, in the other. And the, the, the dark glasses were there to prevent him from uh, from us us seeing his eyes reading yes. the script. So anyway, that was an interesting experience. But you know, how many people get their you know family jewels given a nice gentle cupping uh, by <laughs> a uh, Hollywood legend. <laughs> that is a great story. <laughs> um, no, that would be true. Not very many. You would be yes. among the rarer few. <laughs> yes, yes. So finally, anyway, finally look, what... He's, he's gone to that great Hollywood studio in the sky yes. now, and I wish him well. Uh, and uh, he d did give me a fabulous story to tell. And this is in front of the entire crew. You know, everyone could see this. Uh, and I just sort of shrugged it off. Oh, oh yes. Oh, thank you, Glenn. Oh, thank you. And uh, right, moving on now. Uh, uh, so anyway, so that was that was fun. But, uh, generally, I, I you know, get along very well with actors, uh, and uh, because you you must you even even if even their, if they their, their don't make them feel comfortable about. Yeah, performing. E even if they don't cup your balls. Yes, I don't. I, this is not a requirement I make of any uh, actor or hmm, actress uh, uh, to do this. So uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'd far rather you know sit down with them later and have a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> so finally, that uh, that was a great story. Finally, yeah. what is? Uh, do you have like a really good piece of advice or a tip for those who are upcoming in the business or maybe they're in for a little bit but trying to get to the next level? What kind of advice can you lend? Well, yeah, I I would draw your attention to a line from my favorite sci-fi comedy, Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Uh, never give up. Never surrender. Um, uh, it's it, persistence wins. You, you you're not going to luck out like me, getting you know, getting into the junior executive ranks of twenty one. You're not yeah not like well I don't know not likely to maybe you will. Uh, you're not likely to have your first uh, demonstration of your filmmaking ability necessarily appreciated as quickly as mine was. Um, and uh, you know, the, 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 the film that had got me noticed was a 50-minute uh, dramatized documentary about stuntmen called well, yeah, The Stuntmen, <laughs> um, which won the Best Documentary Award at the Sydney Film Festival. And that established me as someone ooh, with an eye for action and who could write, produce, and direct and get financed a 50-minute yeah, documentary that yeah, it was sold as a TV special uh, across the world. Uh, so uh, I was very lucky, but uh, the, the main thing is persistence and constantly try to educate yourself on uh, every aspect of the business. And uh, if there's two words you know, that, that, that you know, should govern your uh, behavior through, throughout uh, your career, 
it's make friends. Mm. I don't mean kiss ass and suck up to people because that's pretty evident. Uh, Its insincerity will not uh, benefit you ultimately. But do people favors, hope they will do you favors. Most of them won't, but it doesn't matter. Do them anyway. And eventually, you know, something will break. Assuming you have the level of talent that is necessary. Right. Um, So uh, you just have to keep, you know, keep studying and keep thinking and uh, just writing is rewriting. Uh, And back in the the old studio days, uh, shooting was reshooting. I mean, you in in the 30s and uh, the 40s, sometimes uh, studios could reshoot maybe 30, 40 percent of the film uh, when they saw it assembled together. But they they had all the actors on on uh, uh, under contract, and he had all the costumes in the and all the sets uh, that were, you know, could be reassembled or or left standing till they'd done the reshoots. I mean the people wanted to perfect the the work uh and uh, yeah well, that, that still happens today and uh, yeah. but they, look the the main thing is is just keep trying uh and keep trying new things um and adapt to the, the changes in the marketplace well, um, and so you know now you can make a, a demonstration of your ability on your iPhone 10 uh, and your, you know, editing software on your computer. Absolutely. Uh, so in that regard, your ability to make a demonstration, uh, proof of concept, let's say, uh, of, as, of you as a viable you know, filmmaker that uh, you know, uh, people can trust with their money, uh, that that is certainly cheaper to than having to fund your own 16 millimeter short as you used to have to do right. maybe back in the in the 60s and 70s um, as just you, your first sort of uh, yeah, starting out of the gate uh, uh, endeavor. Um, so you know that's you know that's one thing. It's just it's it, it's getting past the gatekeepers to someone who you know will recognize your ability and give you a shot. Uh, it happened to Steven Spielberg, straight yeah, out of UCLA Film School, and he, you know, he managed to, you know, impress Sid Sheinberg yeah. at Universal, and he, he, yeah, he was then given an episode of Night Gallery to do as a result, uh, and he did it. He was very meticulously planned and very confident. Uh, I think he directed Joan Crawford. I think that's uh, correct. So. You know, these breaks can happen. Um, so, but but ultimately, persistence wins. That's all I can really offer anybody. Well, Bri- Brian, that is exceptionally valuable. All the pieces of advice that you just gave, and this has just been a masterclass in in how to have a career that lasts and to uh, make things the way that you sort of want to make them, at least most of the time. Um, and I I can't thank you enough for coming on Storybeat today. It's been a real joy. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, too. I'm, I'm, I'm honored by to have the opportunity. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support 
of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.